All right, if you got your Bibles, John chapter 21 is where we are. This is one of two final sermons in the Gospel of John. I can't believe it. We're here. John 21. And before I dive in and start teaching, I'm going to invite Ashley to come. She is going to read this passage for us, and then I'll pray, and we'll spend some time unpacking these verses together. Ashley, go ahead. This is from the Gospel of John, verse 21, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Amen. Thank you. Friends, will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you often show up in surprising ways. We sing songs like Amazing Grace. uh, And yet, God, we confess that at times we're not amazed and we're not surprised, maybe as we ought to. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would meet us in surprising ways here today. For myself, God, I pray you would guard my lips that I'd only teach that which is truthful and helpful and that all of us would have a rich encounter with your grace, a rich encounter with your goodness uh, as we look at these words of this story. We pray that Jesus would be the focus of our attention in this time, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. I'm going to start with a a, a proposition, okay? I, I believe that people overall like to be surprised, Now, I know that there are some of you in the room who are like, not me. And if you ever do anything to surprise me, I've got a surprise for you. But hear me out, okay? Here's here's my exhibit A about why why I think people, generally speaking, like surprises. All of these uh, kiddos up here that we're praying for and dedicating, are, are you guys familiar with something called the gender reveal party? You guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, we, this wasn't even a thing really, you know, 14, 15 years ago when we were having kids, even maybe when our youngest is, a, is six, I don't even remember it really being that popular. It's kind of a new thing where you have this party and there's some sort of surprise like balloons or a cake or I saw one yesterday on Facebook, a, a 
player from the Cleveland Indians helped out a, a couple who was Indians fans. They threw a baseball to him. He hit the baseball. It exploded in a puff of pink smoke, and everyone was surprised that they're having a girl. Quick show of hands. How many of you were those kind of parents where you waited until the day of the child's birth to find out the gender? Okay. So some of you like the surprise. You're going to have surprise one way or another. But a lot of people want to move the surprise up. We want to experience the surprise sooner because we like it. Exhibit B. There's this movie called Avengers Endgame. Maybe you've heard of it. And it, don't worry, but like at the, at the end, when the Power Rangers show up and find out that Darth Vader is his father and like, you know, Bilbo has to travel back in time. I don't remember. It's nerd stuff, right? But I have seen no fewer than 11,000 people posting on social media, don't spoil the ending. No spoilers. Ah! I will unfriend you in real life if you spoil it. The end of it. Why? Because you want to get to the end of the movie and enjoy the surprise. People like to be surprised, which is why we play this game at my house where I jump out and scare my wife all the time because she loves it. Despite the mean things she calls me, I know deep down in her heart just how much she loves it. Okay, I sh- <laughs> let me be clear. Some surprises we like. There are negative surprises too. Like obviously tragedies or, or, or serious things that happen in life or even maybe something as simple as like, where, where is my wallet? I'm, act- I'm actually asking that. I have no idea where my wallet is this morning. I think I left it at home, but it's not with me today. Right, that feeling of, of where's my wallet? And, and here's the interesting thing about surprise. It can be both positive and negative. It's, it's different than other emotions. In fact, psychologists kind of argue about is surprise an emotion? It's both positive, it's negative. Here's the best definition that I came across as I was reading this week. Um, <clears throat> surprise is defined as an emotional response that leads to an evaluation. You have this reaction, but then you spend some time thinking about it. So, ah, where's my wallet? It's probably in the drawer because I had it last night after we got home, you know, from the picnic we were at. The end of the movie. Oh, the big surprise at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah, I, sh- I should have seen that coming because so-and-so did this and they said that. And we start to evaluate. There's a psychologist. This is an article from Psychology Today magazine from back in 2015. Art Markman says this. Surprise has value because it serves as a signal of how much work someone will need to do to understand what just happened. For a very surprising situation, a person will need to set aside time to really figure out what is going on. Having an emotional marker of this difficulty is useful because it signals that someone needs to devote time to making sense of the world. And because surprise tends to make people stop what they're doing, it clears mental space for that work. Isn't that interesting? And to think through the, the life and the ministry of Jesus during his, his earthly life, I mean, how often could we say that surprise is one of the markers, one of the defining markers of what Jesus did? His incarnation is surprising. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wow, God, big, big. And then, oh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's, that's surprising, is it not? 
How about Jesus teaching? Talks that the people, says that the people would talk amongst themselves. We never heard anybody teach like this guy did. He speaks as one who has authority, not like those other teachers of the law. And his, his miracles, Jesus says, I did one miracle and you all marvel at it. That people were marveling and they're surprised by the works they did. How about, how about people being surprised by the associations that Jesus kept? Hanging out with tax collectors and Pharisees, with prostitutes, with social outcasts. It says in, in John chapter 4, that when his disciples came back from getting lunch, they marveled that Jesus was talking with a Samaritan woman. How about the surprising humility of Jesus? That if he's the leader, he's the rabbi, he's the boss, and even if he's the Messiah, he's going to be the king, and yet he takes off his outer garment, puts on a towel to bend down and wash his disciples' feet. You remember Peter's reaction to that? Lord, what are you doing? This is beneath you. You can't do this. What about the surprise of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion? No, you're the Messiah. We thought you were going to be the one that restored Israel. This can't be happening. And then friends, what about the biggest surprise, not just in the gospel of John, but in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead surprising his followers on that first Easter morning by showing that he had passed through death and has now come out alive on the other side and he is offering grace and forgiveness and redemption to all who trust in him. How good is that surprise? Which leads me to ask maybe an interesting or or even possibly sort of odd question. Why is there a John chapter 21? Why is there a John chapter 21? You might remember, uh, not just last week when we actually looked at this passage, but we've been looking at this passage throughout because John gives us a really neat, tidy summary statement that really wraps up the story that he wrote really well. You know this in John 20, it says there's many other signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, but these ones specifically were written down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. Boom! End of story. But then there's this John chapter 21. And we're, the guys are fishing for crying out loud, like, what are we doing here? I thought, like, that sounds like a really good way to wrap up the story, does it not? Here's what I think is going on. I think that John chapter 21 serves as this evaluation after a huge surprise. The disciples have just been confronted by, greeted by the resurrected Savior. No one saw this coming. They're all very surprised. And if these psychologists are correct, well, after a big surprise like that, you need some time to think about it. And I think that John 21 is giving us some time to think about the implications of what it means that Jesus has been raised from the dead. My my big idea today is simply this. Jesus has always been and will always be very surprising. So if you're one of those people that you're a little bit nervous about surprise, A, I'm sorry. (laughs) But B, we love you. And know that any surprise that Jesus has for you is intended for your good. So, if you got your Bibles, let's jump back in. Let's, let's look at how this all kind of sets itself up. Chapter 21. After this, so this is after Thomas from last week. You guys remember doubting Thomas? Not 
Doubting Thomas, Pragmatic Thomas. I'm, chain, I'm rebranding him. Uh, Jesus appeared, and it says after this, we don't really know how long. Uh, we know that Jesus appeared to his followers for a period of 40 days after his resurrection and before his ascension to heaven. So it's no more than 40 days, but we're not entirely sure how long of a period of time. Just later, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. The Sea of Tiberias is important because this is back in the region of Galilee. John doesn't tell us this, but if you look in Mark's gospel, the angel tells Mary Magdalene to tell the disciples, Jesus is risen, go to Galilee and wait. He'll meet you there. This is the region in the north. This is where it all started. This is where Jesus first found his disciples and called them, hey, come and follow me. Come and see. So they do it. They go. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin. There's our guy. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. The sons of Zebedee. That's our author, John, and his brother, James, the sons of thunder. And two other guys. We're together. I wonder why John does stuff like that. It's like You gave us all the other names. Did you just blank or what? Oh. No, Bartholomew, I'm not going to write your name in my gospel. Uh, so Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Uh, this is his occupation. This is what he was doing before Jesus called him into ministry. They're sitting there. They're waiting for Jesus. Who knows for how long? Might as well redeem the time. Go get some work in. Provide. We don't have Jesus leading us anymore. I'm, I'm just going to kind of go back to what I know. I'm going fishing. And isn't it just like Peter to always be the man of action and the leader, the one to say first? They said to him, eh, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Have any of you ever, any of you ever been fishing? Have any of you ever been skunked when fishing? <laughs> Is that a good feeling or a bad feeling? In the first worship gathering, uh, there's a, a family here that does commercial fishing for a living. And I said, have you ever been skunked? He's like, not really on the commercial side, but you do have those catches where it's way, way less than you'd hoped for. And I was like, is that a good feeling or a bad feeling? And that's a dumb question. But if, if you're going fishing and you get skunked, it's not really a good feeling. If this is your livelihood and the way you're, you know, you're, you're trying to make uh, provision for yourself and your loved ones, this is a really bad feeling all night, and they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking. So they've been fishing overnight. I guess that's when the fish are ready to be caught. It is early in the morning. I see people posting on Facebook like, it's 4 a.m., let's go fishing. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was him. Jesus said to them, Children. This is a really interesting word in the Greek. It's sometimes translated as children, like, like children, it's diminutive. It's sometimes translated as friends. It really is, after kind of looking at the, the, the Greek and digging into it, it really is the equivalent of when, like, you know, guy walks in with his friends and goes, ah, my boys, boys. Like it's diminutive, but it's familiar. If Jesus was, you know, Irish, lads, do you have any fish? <laughs> and then they answered him, no. <laughs> Getting skunked is bad. Pulling back up to the dock and having someone say, oh, how'd you do? 
And he said to them, well, hey, why don't you cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Guys, I did a lot of digging, a lot of study, a lot of research. There's just nothing magical about what side of the boat you put your net onto. A lot of people have a lot of conjecture, like, well, maybe it's because of this or maybe it's because of that. I think it's because Jesus knows the character of fishermen. And this is what fishermen do. They say things like, oh, you didn't get any fish. Well, did you go up by the bridge? And did you try the little cove that's under the thing? And well, what tackle are you using, by the way? And what's your, what's your method? Are, do you have a big enough hook? Are you, like, that's what fishermen do. You guys know what I'm talking about? And then there's a sickness in the heart of fishermen. We're like, oh, that's a good idea. And then they go try it. <laughs> Since I'm getting too close to home for somebody here, somebody's elbowing their, their husband or their wife. So they, they do it. Do you try the other side of the boat? Ugh, fine. They cast their net on the other side of the boat, and now they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Boom. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, our author, therefore said to Peter, notice he, he doesn't say it to all seven of the disciples, he leans over to Peter. I, I love the friendship between John and Peter. Uh, he leans over, John is first one to recognize. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. John is a thoughtful dude. His, his, his wheels, his gears are always turning. Peter, on the other hand, Simon Peter, when he heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. Stranger things have happened in fishing boats, I'm sure, and threw himself into the sea. The idea here is he's probably in his uh, like linen undergarment, uh, you know, stripped down for the hard work of fishing. When he sees Jesus, he grabs his coat, ties it around his waist, and just jumps in and starts swimming, like without even giving a thought for his own safety or for the other disciples coming in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Aren't you thankful that not all the disciples of Jesus are the exact same? I'm thankful that there are people who just like, and they throw themselves into the water without really thinking things through. I trend in that direction myself. I'm really thankful for people who are like, well, we'll finish this up, Peter. Uh, Taking the boat, dragging the fish in. About a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire already in place. I want you to remember that charcoal fire. We're going to come back to that next week in the last sermon in John. The charcoal fire with fish already laid out on it. Oh, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. I I already got breakfast going, but you want to add to it? Let's make it a big breakfast. So Simon Peter went back aboard. He got back in the boat and hold the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, I don't know if he's got some help or if Peter is just really strong or with a lot of adrenaline right now. But the net was not torn, even though there were so many fish. Look at the divine protection there. According to the natural, the net should have been burst. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. <laughs> you almost get the sense like there's this like nervous like glances. Like it's, it, it's Jesus, right? Like we all know it's Jesus, right? Like I think it's, it's, it's him, but he's, it's different. And it, 
Yeah, okay, we don't, don't ask. Don't, nobody embarrass yourself. But they knew it was him. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I want to I I say three things about the way that Jesus surprises us. He surprises us with our own poverty. He surprises us with his presence and with his provision. Let's look at our own poverty first. These are experienced fishermen. They have spent their lives fishing. They know how to catch fish. They know which side of the boat to throw the nets on. And it's not just that they know how to fish. They know how to fish this particular body of water. This is their region. This is the Galilee. This is where they're from. They knew every wave on this sea. They knew every nook and cranny of this body of water, this sea. And yet a night spent out fishing, they come away completely empty-handed. They're, they're, they're impoverished. It's interesting because it's like, it's like you can't really cri- uh, criticize them for going back to what they know. They're going back to fishing. This is what we do. This is what I know how to do. This is how I know to make a living, to take care of my family. But it's almost like Jesus wants them to see that even on the other side of the resurrection, his words from John 15 are still true. You guys remember that in John 15, where Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's, it's not just that he blesses them with this big catch of fish. It's that once they finally drag all the fish ashore and get them all up there, Jesus already has fish and bread and he serves it to them. It makes me think of in Psalm 50 where God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because I've already got the whole world and all that it's filled with. It all belongs to me. Friends, I don't know if you're like me, but I don't like to feel dependent upon other people very much. I like to feel self-sufficient. I like to feel like I've got my stuff together. And actually, I love when other people come and ask me for help. Probably one of the reasons why I'm a pastor, because I actually love to help people. I love to serve people. But boy, I do not like the feeling of weakness and need and poverty. Is there anybody in the room with me on that? None of us like that feeling. None of us like to be shown how truly in need of grace we are. And friends, we talk about the grace of God. We talk about the mercy of God. We talk about the love of God that was revealed at the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But friends, for any of that to make sense, we first have to acknowledge our abject spiritual poverty. There is no amazing grace without a wretch like me to begin with. And these disciples have an opportunity before they're confronted with, with Jesus' uh, presence and his provision, they have an opportunity to be confronted with their own poverty. Oh, you mean I can't just go back to work? It's not just going to be business like usual? You mean I can't just go on with my life? I still need to rely upon Jesus even for the things that I think are within my control? Yeah, it means that. Friends, if you woke up this morning 
and you have breath in your lungs and blood coursing through your veins, you didn't cause that to happen. Not only are we in need of God's grace for salvation, which is obviously the hugest need that any of us have, but even once we have been saved, even once we've been redeemed and brought into the family of God, how many of you know we still, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, need his grace? Because we're so broke. We're, we're broke. We're poor. We have nothing that we bring to Jesus, he brings it all to us. It makes me think of the verse in, in Revelation 3. In Revelation, John, our same author, many, many years later in his life, he's having this vision. And at the beginning of the vision, Jesus shows up and Jesus says uh, some words of correction to various church groups, churches in different cities. Uh, this is to a church in Laodicea. And just, I'm, I'm thinking about this because there's all these different words in here that resonate with this story. Jesus says, you say, dear Laodicean church, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. But you're not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow, thanks for that, Jesus. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness, maybe like Peter in the boat, may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They didn't see Jesus. They didn't recognize him at first. Those whom I love, I reprove. I correct and, and discipline. So, so be passionate and repent. And then look at this, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is always wanting to have breakfast with his people. That is awesome. But here's what kind of struck me anew this week. This verse, verse 20. Where do we most often hear this verse used? In evangelistic presentations, non-Christians, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. You need to open the door of your heart and let him come in. In the context of this passage, who is Jesus talking to? The church in Laodicea. Dear church, I want to have a meal with you, but you're too busy with all of your stuff and you don't realize how much you need me. Boy, would that preach in an area like ours? Theoretically. Guys, I'll just say it bluntly. The, the material wealth and possessions that we have available to us is like spiritual carbon monoxide kills us silently. We can't even hear Jesus knocking on the door, trying to meet us in our poverty because we think we're so prosperous. If we're going to drink deeply of the riches of God's grace, we must first be confronted. We must first be surprised with how poor we truly are.
Number two, Jesus surprises us with his presence. I I think that there's something to be said about the disciples going back to fishing after spending these approximately three years traveling with Jesus. It's like, it's like, well, we had this period of time. This was the Jesus world. And now that Jesus is dead and resurrected and we're not entirely sure where he is, I guess maybe we just kind of go back to the world that we knew. And yet Jesus shows up surprising in his presence. Have you guys noticed, by the way, just how surprising Jesus is in his resurrection appearances? We saw the last two weeks that it, the doors were locked and he just shows up. Oh, that's different. Uh, Mary didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener. Here, the disciples don't recognize him. If you look in, in the gospel of Luke, there's these two disciples that go on a journey with Jesus. They don't recognize him. He, he, he still has nail scars in his hands, but there's something about passing through death and coming out on the other side. He wasn't just resuscitated, he's resurrected and there's like a newness that's happening. And did you notice how John said it was a new day breaking? It's the breaking of the day. And I think that theologically he's pointing at there's a, there's a new day in humanity that has happened. There's a new future. There's a resurrected future. It's not just that Jesus resurrected, but we will all someday be resurrected like him. And in fact, the entire cosmos, all of creation will be made anew. How awesome will that be? And when Jesus shows up, it's like he's giving them a sneak peek in their current mundane world of fishing back in their small you know, podunk hometown. This isn't Jerusalem, the big city. They're back in Galilee. And Jesus says, hey, check this out. Look, what, look what's coming. Look what the future will be like. Look what I have in store, not just for me, but for you and for all of the world. It's a, it's a very bad analogy, as all of mine are. But it, it makes me think of, I have this kind of waking daydream where I wish I could go back in time and I could bring like, somebody from history into our current modern day society. Like, like I would love to go get Mozart and bring him and like, okay, this is Spotify and I'm about to play you some Metallica or something like that just to see what his reaction would be. Or even better, I want to go get Ben Franklin. Like, remember those experiments with electricity that you were doing? Dude, check this out. Wireless phone charging. And just be like, whoa. Like, I would love that. It's a... It's a very Bill and Ted-esque sort of daydream, but I have it frequently. It's like Jesus is doing that with the disciples. Like, hey, I'm here. I'm resurrected. The world is going to be completely shifted. You don't get to just go back to business as usual. You don't get to go behind locked doors. You don't get to just go back to your job. Jesus is gonna show up. How many of you are guilty at times of compartmentalizing your life in such a way where there's parts that Jesus is more or less allowed in and parts of your life where Jesus is just kind of either not allowed or maybe an afterthought? You're welcome, Tom. (laughs) I do this. We do this. Maybe for some of you, it's not even intentional, but it's like you just think, yeah, there's these parts of my life where Jesus is welcome. I go to church. I go to my, my small group. And then you got these other times where I go to work. I go to the PTA meetings. I'm doing laundry. Jesus is there. The resurrected Jesus is there. It's like the disciples needed to learn that they have to trust in Jesus in all of the areas of their life. 
in their preaching and in their fishing, in their travels to the big city and in their small little hometown. Jesus is there. Friends, Jesus' presence is always with us. And it's very surprising at times when Jesus shows up. And I think whether actively or passively, sometimes we miss out on Jesus' presence because we're not looking to be surprised. We'd never say it this bluntly. We'd never say it this, this, you know, kind of bold face. But it's almost like, well, you know, I've got this, I've got this Christianity thing figured out. I've got this following Jesus thing figured out. I know what God's like. I've read the Bible. I know what Jesus is like. Friends, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character never changes, but his activity is often very surprising. And may we not miss out on his presence because we're occupied with the things in our lives that we don't think Jesus has any relation to. Friends, there is no area of your life that Jesus doesn't want to show his presence to you. Last one. Jesus surprises us with his provision. Kind of a normal way. Well, try throwing your net on the other side of the boat. Try casting your fishing pole backwards. Like what? Kind of just a a normal sort of a way. But then it says, the fish were large. Did you notice that it said large fish? Like there is no fish and game department coming out to say, no, that one's not a keeper. You got to throw it back. But like large fish are good. If you're a fisherman, larger fish are better than smaller fish because that means there's more meat and you can sell them for a higher price or you can feed more people. And then it says 153 fish. Goodness, if you want a deep, dark rabbit hole to travel down, spend some time searching what people think the significance of 153 is. Oh boy. Uh, There's an early church father, Jerome, who quoted from a Greek naturalist who said, well, science tells us that there are 153 different types of fish in the world. So this, Jerome says, is is a picture that all the nations, all the peoples of the world are going to come to Jesus through the apostolic preaching. There are not 153 types of fish. There's like more than 500 types of just sharks alone. I, I learned that in a conversation with some guys over sushi yesterday, which is kind of insensitive to talk about fish while we're eating them. Anyways, that's, I'll fix that. But you know what I mean? Like, so there's another, uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel says that when the Messiah comes, one of the evidences is that the rivers will be full of fish. And Ezekiel says, all the way from Engedi to Eneglium. And you know how like Hebrew words also have numbers? You can take the letters and each one has a number. And Engedi is the number 17. And Eglium is the number 153. And 17 is important because if you add up all the numbers, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 up to 17, do you know what it adds up to? 153. And the next thing you know, you've got ammo cans stacked around you and a map on the wall with strings going all over it and you've lost your mind. Here's why I think the number 153 is given to us. Because these are fishermen and they're used to counting fish. And while the fishermen you know probably exaggerate their numbers a little bit, This is divinely inspired scripture, so I think we can trust that there were exactly 153 fish. Peter probably tried to exaggerate the numbers, but John wouldn't let him. 
Here's the thing about the provision that God brings in this moment. It's excessive. It's too much. More fish than they knew what to do with. And by the way, when they got the fish, remember, Jesus already had fish. Don't, don't raise your hand, but do any of you ever struggle to feel like your father is stingy with you? Holding out on you, being a miser, just doling out one little penny at a time just so you could kind of scrape by and just have enough. Friends, I'm here to tell you that the grace of God is absurd. It's excessive. It's wasteful even according to the wisdom of man. But according to the great riches of God's love and mercy, the grace that he has for us, the love that he has for us, the mercy he has for us is too much. We can't even pull the net in. He loves us so much. And friends, I hope you grasp this. I hope you get a picture of just how much and how big Jesus' provision is. Because if we don't, there's a a couple of areas where this will really, really burden you. Two thoughts. Number one, if we don't really trust how big Jesus' provision is for us, we're going to live like everything depends on us. They caught the fish because Jesus provided the fish. They got up on the beach. He already has breakfast for them. Friends, I'm just going to read this quote from N.T. Wright. He says it better than me. It's a long quote, but listen to what he says. How dreadfully easy it is for Christian workers... And by the way, this isn't just for ministry. This is for parenting, for working at your job, providing, whatever it might be. How easy it is for Christian workers to get the impression that we've got to do it all. God, we imagine, is waiting passively for us to get on with things. If we don't organize it, it won't happen. If we don't tell people the good news, they won't hear it. If we don't change the world, it won't be changed. He has no hands but our hands, we are sometimes told. What a load of rubbish. Sometimes I wish I was British so I could say words like rubbish. Garbage for those of you who don't know. Whose hands made the sun rise this morning? Whose breath guided us to think and pray and love and hope? Who is the Lord of the world anyway? We may be given the Holy Spirit to enable us to work for Jesus, but the holy breath is not independent of the master who breathes it out, of the sovereign God, the creator. Neither the institutional church nor its individual members can upstage him. Jesus welcomes Peter's catch. He asks him to bring some of it, but he doesn't in that sense need it. Of course we are to work hard. Of course we are to be organized. Of course there is no excuse for laziness, sloppiness, half-heartedness in the kingdom of God. If it's God's work we're doing, we... we, We must do it with all our might. But let's have no nonsense about it all being up to us, about poor old Jesus being unable to lift a finger unless we lift it for him. In fact, we are much more likely to work effectively once we get rid of that paranoia-inducing notion. Jesus remains sovereign. Thank God for that. Yes and amen. Friends, I'll even just admit to you here, I have not very often done a good job of leading in that way. I really often fall 
prey to that idea of I've got to do it all, I must do everything. And I, I want you to forgive me. And if I know our, our congregation as, as well as I think I do, probably a lot of you struggle with that burdensome feeling on your shoulders like it's all up to you. Friends, it's not. Jesus died, Jesus rose again, Jesus shows up with fish. Take a breath. One more. If we don't trust in Jesus' provision, our prayers are going to sound like they're being prayed by an atheist. Here's what I mean by that. Last Sunday, we were talking about some of these ideas as well. And, and Jamie, one of my friends in, in the nine o'clock service, he ran up to me afterwards and he goes, like just full of like agitation of the Holy Spirit. He goes, man, he goes, how often do I hedge my bets in my prayers? Well, God, if you could do this, or maybe if you could find the time, or I don't know. And he goes, I could probably pray prayers for several weeks where every prayer could be answered just by me. I remember hearing a a pastor friend of mine a few years ago talking about how he went to go pray for a woman who was sick and he was going to pray for healing. And he felt like God spoke to him really, really clearly as he went to pray. God says, do not pray for her if you don't believe I'm going to heal her. And he goes, well, this is awkward, but this is another pastor and he would love to pray for you and walked off because he was just struck by and convicted in the moment. Like, I don't actually believe what I'm about to pray. I don't believe that Jesus is going to heal her. I don't want my prayers to sound like a functional atheist. I want to trust in Jesus and his provision. I want to trust that Jesus brings fish for breakfast and bread and wine at the table of the Lord and that the words of Ephesians might actually be true, that he might be able to do far greater things than I ask or imagine. Oh, sure, my prayers are misguided just like all of us. and I ask for dumb things, I'm sure, and there's things that I don't even realize that I'm asking for or whatever. But, but do you see the extravagant provision and the grace of God in Jesus Christ? It'll affect our prayer life. So let me, let me close with this thought. When was the last time you were surprised by Jesus? I am praying that in a few minutes, when we take time to pray and we take time to celebrate the Lord's table and to sing, I pray that you have a moment where Jesus surprises you. I pray when we're done with this gathering and we we leave to go to our homes, maybe you're going to have a Mother's Day brunch or a celebration, or maybe some of you, you you're going to go back to work tomorrow. I'm praying that Jesus shows up in some surprising ways. May we not, I know it's cliche, I know it's kind of a Christian cliche, may we not put God in that box where we think we've got him all figured out. For those of you who are here today, you're you're not a believer in Jesus, and you're sitting here thinking, this this grace, this love, this mercy sounds really good. Yeah, it's surprisingly good, and it's for you. In a moment when we pray, and Pastor Doug leads us in communion, there's an invitation to, to come to the table, trade your sin, your brokenness, your hurts, for the riches of his grace. For those of you who've already received that, let's drink deeply of his surprising grace, his astonishing mercy. God, I pray that you would help us. God, some of us maybe we're, we're jaded or we're cynical. And God, I just ask and I pray that you'd help us once again to, to see the wonder of your mercy, to see just truly how impoverished we are 
shocking and surprising in our need for you. And yet, Jesus, to be surprised by you showing up in all sorts of places and you showing up with lavish grace and gifts. God, I pray now as we go to the table and as we sing, I pray that we, we would experience a taste of that, 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 that kingdom that is to come. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. Thank you for leading us in God's word today. As we transition from the sermon to communion, go ahead and pull out the little elements and get them opened up. And while you do that, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Jesus died that we might know the Father. Communion is for those who believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Perhaps you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe today's the day. In our scripture, we see Jesus serve him and fellowship with them. But there's another account that Pastor Aaron referred to in Luke's gospel, chapter 24. Two men were on the road to Emmaus. They were walking. These men were broken. Their hopes were crushed. The Savior that they hoped would lead them just died a humiliating death. And then a traveler joins him. He, he, was, he said, why are you guys sad? What, what's the problem? And they were surprised. That you haven't heard about Jesus and what has happened? So the men explained to him, to, to their traveling companion, what had happened. They were somewhat exasperated. And then they, they were surprised when their new companion rebuked them. Because they forgot the words of the prophets who told he of his coming, saying, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Explain the words of the prophets is what he did to them he, concerning the coming of Christ. When they arrived at Emmaus, they invited him to stay and eat with them. It's here when the stranger revealed his identity through a miracle. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him 
And then he vanished from their sight. Jesus will surprise us. He has surprised us. He will continue to do that. But remember, he still seeks us. He wants, he wants to reveal himself to us that we might know him. In a, moment, in a moment, the band will lead us in singing, but before taking communion is the time that we can pause and reflect. If you are not in relationship with the Lord, this is a father who wants to spend time with his children, wants to know them, wants good for them. Perhaps today is the day, perhaps now is the time. Respond to him now. Thank him and praise him for his sacrificial love. Ask him to reveal more of himself to you. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And I just ask that you would direct our hearts now as we come before you. We love you. We thank you that you would call us, that you would give us your name. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.